Well, we pick up our reading again from Genesis 8. And it says this. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heaven was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he saw it sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives, with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And they may swarm on the earth, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal, and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that you that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. You shall not eat flesh of its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. 
From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and the beasts of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I'll see it, and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, walked backwards, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived for 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. We're going to have a look at that passage in a minute. Before we do, let me mention a few things. There'll be a question time at the end, so do have your questions ready. Um, obviously, there's a sermon outline in your service sheet if you wish to use it. Otherwise, let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these remarkable events. And as we look back on them, we, will, we pray, Lord, that it will help us look forward to the events that we anticipate and look forward to that will take place 
you'll provide us with a new heavens and a new earth. Amen. When God spoke to Jeremiah, he said this, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah's task is one of destruction. Although it doesn't end there. Everything will be destroyed so that everything can be rebuilt. But it's only once the destruction is complete that the rebuild can happen. Jerusalem will be destroyed. The people will go into exile because they've broken the covenant of God made with them and they've served idols. But there is a promise that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. God's city will be destroyed, but a day will come when God will rebuild his city. When John sees his vision, the one recorded in the book of Revelation, a recurring image is the destruction of the earth. The world is divided. The servants of God are given a seal on their forehead, while others are given the mark of the beast. There will be great suffering and God's enemies will be destroyed. And at the end, the first heaven and earth will have passed away. But then there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Where God will dwell with his people and he will be their God. The new earth will resemble a garden. It will be a lot like the Garden of Eden. But it will be more than a garden. It will be a city. And there God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Now in both cases, as the people go into exile, and as the people anticipate the coming suffering as described in John's vision, we can imagine there being plenty of anxiety over what is to come. In the darkest of moments, the question might be raised, can God save his people? Now fortunately, these are not the first occasions that such devastation has occurred within God's creation. The first example is the flood. Now according to the genealogy of Genesis 5, there's roughly... 1,600 years between creation and the flood. Now we're about 2,023 years from Christ's birth. So the time covered in the first six or seven chapters of Genesis is only 400 years less than the time we find ourselves from the beginning of our calendar. Quite a lot of time has passed since Cain killed Abel. Now in 6 verse 5, we read, The Lord saw. 
Now, just before we go on any further and consider what it is that the Lord saw, we can pause for a moment and remember the last time this phrase was used. You remember it was in day 6, Genesis 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But this time, John, uh, Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God evaluates the world and seeing the state of man's heart, perpetual evil, God chooses to blot it out. Notice though the order in which everything will be destroyed. It's seen there in verse 7. So the law said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I'm sorry that I've made them. The order in which God will the order in which God lists what will be destroyed is the reverse order in which he created them. So the flood will reverse God's act of creation. Now what's interesting is what God says after the flood has subsided. So have a look at 820. Here Noah offers a burnt offering upon an altar he has made. Then in verse 21 we read this. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Both times, on both occasions, the reason is given, and that is, man's heart is evil. But the consequence is different. The first, the evil of man's heart causes God to destroy man. But on the second occasion, the evil of man's heart is God's justification for never destroying the earth as he has done That is, as God sees the evil of man's heart now, he will hold off destroying man. And it might not be clear yet, but God is going to work through the evil of man's heart to bring about his redemption for his chosen people. Now, of course, during the flood, God didn't completely destroy humanity. One single exception was made. Well, Noah, Noah's wife, Noah's three sons, and Noah's sons' three wives. Now the reason for this is given in verse 9 of chapter 6. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. 
Now, this verse is when evangelicals become a little twitchy. And they're quick to play this verse off with a verse like Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they affirm, yes, Noah was a sinner. But this means we miss the significance of what's happening here in this verse. Notice that verse 9 lists three things about Noah. First, he was a righteous man. It doesn't stop there. He was a blameless man. And that's a character trait that he shares with Job. The commentator says every Israelite was expected to be righteous. Though Deuteronomy encourages the whole people to be blameless, this was actually achieved by few. <coughs> but Noah was blameless. And then finally, Noah walked with God. The only other person is said, who is said to have, be, have walked with God is Enoch. And he was taken up to heaven by God. Noah is nothing less than a remarkable man. And this is only all the more accentuated when you appreciate how the rest of humanity is behaving in this context. And so God chooses Noah to build an ark, which he does. But after this, it's quite passive. Notice that it's the Lord who shuts him in or closes the door in verse 16 of chapter 7. And then the rain comes. The water is described as doing two things. In 7 verse 17, the flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. And it rose high above the earth. So it's because of the water that the ark was bore up. Then, of course, in verse 23, we see that it was the ark, it was the water, which was God's means to kill everything that lived on the earth. So the water has these two sides it's Noah's salvation. And it's God's punishment on the earth. Then the imagery we have at the end of Genesis 7 brings to mind the imagery we have at the start of Genesis 1. So we can compare Genesis 7 verse 19. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Compare that with 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then when God acts to save Noah, in 8 verse 1, he causes a wind to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The flood is a return to before creation. 
God is recreating the world. God has taken the earth back to the early stages of creation for a new start. He will begin to fulfil his purpose through Noah and his descendants. And this is further referred when God repeats the mandate that God had given to the man and woman in Genesis 1. And it's now given to Noah at the beginning of Genesis 9. And this brings to mind a verse we read last week, back in 528-29, when Lamech names his son. When Lamech had lived for 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, and saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. The name Noah is a pun. It sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. So when Lamech names his son, he believes that Noah will bring relief from the curse of the ground. He'll bring rest. And when God smells the aroma of Noah's offering, he says he will never again curse the ground because of man. Then in 9 verse 20, Noah plants a vineyard. His growth is so successful that he becomes drunk with wine. But the original curse is not reversed. That's the role of someone else. Going to Peter 2 verse 5, Noah is used as a long list of examples. Each example is given to demonstrate that God has, in the past, rescued godly people from trials. And he keeps the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now, while we've read four long chapters today, it all appears to have happened quite quickly. But in reality, it covers a long period of time. Noah has his children at the age of 500, and the flood waters do not come until he's 600 years old. God does rescue Noah, and he does punish the ungodly, but it doesn't happen overnight. As we look at the world and the hostility it shows to God, we may wonder why does God delay? Well, it's in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, which provides us with the answer. God delays so that all of his elect have time to repent and be saved. But in the meantime, we can be assured that God will keep his righteous ready to rescue them from trials. And he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. And so it's because of the example of Noah that we can be confident that God will save his people. We can rest assured that he will keep us until the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that to you it is no small thing um, to 
rescue your people, but rather it's your plan and purpose, uh, your creation purposes, to bring about a humanity that will dwell with you for eternity. We thank you that we live in this phase of redemptive history where um, the work has been done, that you have reconciled us to your son, and now the uh, lesser job is just to keep us until the end. We pray, Lord, that we continue in confidence knowing that this is something that you are able to do because you've done it in the past. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the beginning that there have been opportunities to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about this morning. So, any questions or comments? Yes, Hannah. Ah, yes. So, so just repeat for the recording, what's the significance of the curse of Canaan. So, I think what's happening here is, so you, you notice back in verse 18 it says, Ham was the father of Canaan. Um, so, it's then Ham who discovers father naked. Noah naked. And so I think it's simply that he is Noah's cursing him because of his action against his father. Um, now, of course, later on that becomes significant because God's people and Canaan become um, hostile to one another. And there's a great hostility to them. So I think that's about it. Oh yeah, so I, I think so. I, well, I think so. In verse twenty-two, we've got and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And then you get this sort of rigmarole where Shem and Japheth covering him up and do so in such an awkward way so that they don't see his father's nakedness. So yeah, for whatever reason, whether Ham presumably was making light of it, was then trying to bring his brothers in on the joke, as it were, and shaming his um, his father. And I guess the interesting thing as well, it just crossed my mind as we were reading it earlier on, but we go back to the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve were sh- naked, and there was no problem there. That was There was no shame in that. But then, obviously, once they eat from the tree, they become aware of their nakedness. And that's when God clothes them so that they don't have that nakedness exposed. Interesting as well, I don't know whether we mentioned it the other day, but later on it becomes quite important that the priests are covered up 
when they enter the holy temple. You know, they can't have their genitals on show. Um, even though back in the garden, obviously genitals were on show, as it were. Um, so I guess it relates to that. So yeah, whatever Ham did, again, they don't really go into the details, do they? But whatever Ham did um, just wasn't appropriate. It's all right. Any other questions? Yes, Simon. Who are the sons of God? Okay, so back in 6 verse 2. Well, let, let's read from verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughter of man, and they bore children to them. These were the ninety men who were of old, the men of renown. The short answer is, we don't know. Um, but people do explore different possibilities. So, Let me tell you what I read, and uh, you can make of it what you do. So, the sons of God, people kind of conclude, are en angels, effectively, angelic beings. Um, and they kind of make a connection between the possibility that they there's some sort of fertility thing going on, where to increase fertility... I don't know, you have sort of like weird relationships with these angels or something like that. But what's interesting is it starts off with man, men are multiplying and they're having lots of daughters. Well, daughters are included in multiplication as well. So it doesn't really feel like they need to... Um, like engage with any sort of fertility god or any fertility sort of thing because they're multiplying. And then you get this bizarre thing where the sons of God are attracted to the daughters and then they come down and it's suggested that the, hus um, the fathers go along with this. So apparently the idea was the father would be the one who decided um, if people were married or not. So they give their... It, it looks like they give their blessing... Um, but of course this relationship between these angels and the human daughters isn't appropriate so God kind of puts an end to it so it's almost as unsatisfactory as well we don't know <laughs> isn't it really it doesn't, I don't think it's much better than we don't know uh, but whatever took place it wasn't good sorry uh, time for one more. Yeah, go on. Is that like 
Well, yeah, I, well, it's interesting because I think the commentator said the Nephilim were the children that were born between these angels and the daughters. But I'm not sure whether that reads quite right because it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. It doesn't quite fit, does it? So it could be that the Nephilim are the ones that they bore children, but then it suggests the Nephilim were already there before they had children. Um, but the Nephilim, I think that means refers to giants. Some people make a connection. You know when um, Caleb and the spies go to the land and they're scared because they're giants? They make a connection with them that they were Nephilim as well, possibly. But yeah, we're in that. No. No. Yeah, that's the sort of realms we're in. Yes, Ricky? Oh. Yes. Oh, well spotted, yes. So they do, yeah, it is the, the Nephilim that's seen later on them. Excellent. Should we leave it there? Excellent. Right, in a moment we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper. Uh, but before we do, we will stand to sing The Lord's My Shepherd. <laughs>